afternoon. We're so glad to see a big, a full house here. Um, I'd like to welcome you. My name is Sally Steenland, and I'm the Senior Policy Advisor to the Faith and Progressive Policy Initiative here at the Center for American Progress. On behalf of the Center, I want to welcome you to today's event, Evolution, Transcendence, and the Nature of Faith. Tomorrow is the bicentennial anniversary of Darwin's birth, and this year is also the 150th anniversary of the publication of Origin of the Species. So we're using the occasion to bring together a group of thoughtful experts in the fields of science, bioethics, and religion to examine Darwin's influence on science, religion, and society. Unfortunately, David Sloan Wilson had travel problems this morning and couldn't make the event. But the good news, the really good news, is that our three participants here on stage are up for a very lively, provocative conversation, and we will bring you, the audience, into the mix, too. You know, even though Darwin's discoveries are over a century old, they are still revolutionary to many people. The idea that random mutation and natural selection can explain the diversity of all living things, that we humans are part of a long evolutionary chain, to many, these are troubling ideas. As a Darwin critic once said, I did not come from a monkey. Polls show that over half the American public rejects the theory of evolution. And lest we think that we as a nation are the only ones who are ignorant about science, a British poll released last week revealed that half the British population doesn't believe in evolution either. This ignorance has serious consequences. In order for the US to be competitive in the global market, we need an educational system that teaches real science, not religion disguised as science. In order for us to be effective citizens, able to participate in important decisions about scientific technologies that affect our lives, we need to be scientifically literate and connect our knowledge in an informed way to our moral values. How do we do that? Well, there are no easy or quick answers, but part of the answer lies in greater familiarity, understanding, and respect between religion and science. This panel is one effort in that direction, and there are many others. For instance, the National Academy of Sciences has a project that supports the compatibility of science and religion. And the United Church of Christ has a project called Not Mutually Exclusive, which connects religion with science and technology. And this weekend, the Clergy Letter Project is sponsoring its annual Evolution Weekend with participation by nearly 950 congregations in all 50 states. These are good signs because the alleged incompatibility between religion and science, in fact, is a distortion. The truth is that there's great diversity within both science and religion. Neither one is monolithic. In fact, at their best, both science and religion share many of the same traits and values. Honesty, openness, tolerance, curiosity, and yes, doubt. And just as science and religion are varied and complex, so are individual human beings. Within us all is a mixture of rationality and belief, skepticism and trust. We do rely upon facts and evidence very much, but also we need mystery and transcendence. And given the many urgent issues facing the world, from global warming to pandemic disease, it is in our self-interest to know each other, and while not papering over real differences, to search for areas of common ground. 
And then we need to roll up our sleeves and pitch in on the challenging work facing us all. Darwin once said, in the long history of humankind, those who learn to collaborate and improvise most effectively have prevailed. So in that spirit of collaboration and improvisation, I would like to briefly introduce our distinguished panel. They will talk for a while and then we'll open the discussion to questions from the audience. So as you're listening, please think of questions that you would like to ask. Susan Thistlethwaite is an ordained minister with the United Church of Christ, a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, and former president of the Chicago Theological Seminary. She works in the area of contextual theologies of liberation, specializing in issues of violence and violation. She has written or edited 13 books, including Adam, Eve, and the Genome, and has translated two versions of the Bible. Arthur Kaplan is the Emanuel and Robert Hart Professor of Bioethics and the Director of the Center for Bioethics at the University of Pennsylvania. He has served on many national and international advisory com committees concerning issues of human cloning, gene therapy, human experimentation, trafficking in organs and body parts, and more. His most recent book is Smart Mice, Not So Smart People. Our moderator, Rick Weiss, is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and came to us from the Washington Post, where he was an award-winning science reporter. Rick writes on all things scientific, and in fact, tomorrow in the Washington Post, he will have an op-ed on Darwin's anniversary, so please read that. One of his main focuses is the ethical, legal, social, political, and economic implications of scientific advances and their public policy impacts. So now, please welcome, join me and welcoming our panel. Thank you, Sally. Um, and I'd like to add my welcome to all of you, and I will be sharing a role as sort of moderator and participant here. We'll, we'll see if we can get a good thing going. I think to start things off on the right foot, I wanted to read to you from a uh, newspaper story, from uh, a recent newspaper story, from one of the few newspapers that I still read regularly for science news. Let me uh, read you the top of it, maybe you can tell what paper that is. It's datelined Dayton, Tennessee. A steady stream of devoted evolutionists continued to gather in this small Tennessee town today to witness what many believe is an image of Charles Darwin, author of The Origin of Species and founder of the modern evolutionary movement, made manifest on a concrete wall in downtown Dayton. Okay, this is obviously the onion, but let me go on. <laughs> I brought my baby to touch the wall so that the power of Darwin can purify her genetic makeup of undesirable inherited traits, said Darlene Freiberg, one among a crowd assembled here. Uh, re recall that Dayton is the home of the old Scopes trial. Forgive me, O oh Charles, for ever doubting your divine evolution. After seeing this miracle of limestone pigmentation with my own eyes, my faith in empirical reasoning will never again be tested. Okay, and it goes on to talk about thousands of pilgrims coming from as far away as Berkeley's paleoanthropology department to come look at this thing and pay homage to the mysterious blue-green stain, street vendors selling relics including pieces of wood that they claim came from the beagle. And then what I really love about this is that it has a, a clergyman quoted, uh, a Reverend Clement McCoy, a professor at Oral Roberts University, saying, it's a stain on a wall and nothing more. <laughs> So, you know, what I love about this article is that it so beautifully makes fun of both sides of this so-called debate, makes fun of people of faith, obviously, for seeing things where 
arguably there is nothing to be seen, equally makes fun of scientists who have been known to elevate Darwin pretty much to the you know, uh, level of a god. And if you don't think that's true, you should catch uh, maybe on the web an NPR report that was on this morning, Joe Palka in England uh, with Sean Carroll, an evolutionary biologist, looking at some of Darwin's early notebooks and, and Sean you know, saying to the, to the curator of the library, can I touch it? Oh, I can't believe it, I'm touching Darwin's you know, notebook. Uh, you'd really think this was a Gutenberg Bible or something. So there, there are issues on both sides for us to deal with if we're going to try to bridge this, I think, largely faux gap. And that's what we're going to try to do a little bit of today. So this segues into the first point I wanted to get into, uh, Susan, with you. And that is to get into the, the fact that if we look, if we do a close read of Darwin's theory of natural selection, which basically just says, if you've got the stuff to survive, you're going to win. Um, it looks like we'd have a pretty cold world out here, and yet we don't. I mean, it is a, it is a rough and tumble world, but we have a lot of signs of generosity and, and goodness and altruism out there. Um, and the question is how Darwinian theory can really account for that without letting your folks into the picture to explain some of this. And I, I know that evolutionary biologists uh, have argued rather convincingly that the more we look, the more we see these kinds of pro-social behaviors, even in species other than our own, um, but I wonder if you could address two things for starters. One, given that Darwin himself was a man of faith, uh, at least early in his life, if you could talk to the audience a little bit about how Charles himself dealt with this issue as he came to see the world differently. And then, and then secondly, whether you think there or why you think there is an ongoing need for something other than cold biology to, to keep us elevated uh, as, as beings. Um, few people seem to remember that Darwin graduated from seminary. He went to seminary after he, I wouldn't say flunked out of medical school, but um, he didn't like the sight of blood, so it wasn't the best choice of a career. And as a younger son of an upper-class family, what do you do with an upper, uh, uh, a younger son? You send him into the clergy. And uh, Darwin was not even opposed to this. Um, it would have given him, he thought, plenty of time to go out and gather specimens, which was his primary interest, even from the time he was a child. He went to seminary. He graduated. He was never ordained. However, uh, I think that there's a fundamental honesty and a sense of um, uh, uh, empiricism about his own life, as well as the world. Uh, Darwin does not. Um, finally conclude he is called by the Holy Spirit. And so he takes a sidestep, leaves on the beagle. But at that time, he was putting together faith with effectively uh, a kind of intelligent design approach. He practically memorized Paley's, he writes, he practically memorized Paley's natural, book, Natural Theology, which is not only an intelligent design approach to the god, the, you know, the watchmaker, but is a pretty sunny Sunday afternoon approach to the, uh, the question of the relationship of religion and science. And the evolutionary ideas were in the air even at this time. Darwin comes back uh, after five years, and he is cataloging what he has seen, discovered, and brought back with him. And gradually, it becomes clearer and clearer to him, this is not going to go along with uh, Paley's 
natural theology. At one point, Darwin says, it is like confessing to a murder. But the question for me has always been, what's he murdering? Is he murdering Paley's God, who is a pretty weak and, I think, sentimental God? Is he worrying that he's going to murder the faith of his wife, Emma, who uh, was a very devout person and worries that Darwin will go to hell and they're never going to meet up in the afterlife? Um, or is he, as I think it's clear, worried about the political risk as well? People went to jail for um, attacking uh, religious faith too directly. And it's not in any way unclear to Darwin that he is attacking faith. However, like many people, and I've been a pastor for 35 years, he also comes to what I believe is finally agnosticism through the death of his child. He simply cannot square the death of an innocent child and that child's suffering with the kind of providential God that Anglican theology was telling him was the nature of God. And so it may not even be entirely a scientific, but also what is a common journey for many people. He comes to the question of faith and his doubt of faith from personal experience with unmerited suffering. And I've as maybe you have. Met that in the emergency room, in the intensive care unit, in my own life many times. Now, why then is there a fight? Um, I, I think we're going to get into some more of that later. But let me say that from my own perspective, I have found the encounter with evolutionary biology and in fact, uh, more recently, with the Human Genome Project to be imaginatively productive. And we in the United Church of Christ, we inherit the liberal tradition. We are widely credited with bringing God into the world and taking this world with consummate seriousness. And so it's an expanding area of knowing this world. And as we move forward in our knowledge of this world, especially with a planetary crisis uh, in the environment, it is imperative that religious people understand, as Sally said in the introduction, you know, whether or not you believe in evolution, which is a fatuous way of expressing uh, that, which many people do. Um, it's not a belief system. Evolution's happening to you whether you like it or not. And so the question is, how do we interpret that? Um, it's not a question of whether or not um, one believes it. So I can see how it's important that people of faith uh, become part of the world and appreciate some of the rules that we're talking about here. At the same time, I think uh, a cold-hearted biologist at least would say, well, why bother bringing that in? It's extra. What does it offer that we're not already getting from the natural world? And, and Art, I can th throw this your way. Your field is, is bioethics. It's, I think, seen largely as a secular field, maybe borrowing a lot from religion. Uh, what, what can you say about the dependence, if there is any, of ethics on religious thinking or religion 
or is it extraneous and something that like a vestigial appendage will eventually go away as evolution continues? Well, it's interesting. You know, bioethics is a kind of fun case example of this science uh, religion relationships. When it started, and it didn't start all that long ago, probably uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, the overwhelming majority of the people who got interested in bioethical questions were from religious traditions. So uh, the Protestant theologian Paul Ramsey, the Catholic theologian Richard McCormick, there was a Jewish theologian named David Daub, uh, Jim Gustafson, many, many of the uh, people, even Dan Callahan uh, at the Hastings Center, now that I think of it, and uh, uh, many of the people at Georgetown, uh, Ed Pellegrino and others, uh, came firmly from, rooted in, religious uh, thinking and tradition. They may have fought some with uh, some of their traditions, but they knew them well, and they were, in a sense, inspired to say, look, science is kind of, uh, uh, well, it's got two problems. One is it's not something that can generate values for us. Um, and this is an old saw for many in the room. You're not going to derive a morality out of, scientific stories. So if we're going to uh, try to understand where science should go, science doesn't speak a language that can tell us where it can go. It may, as was said earlier, use values to guide scientific method, but it doesn't give us any ultimate values to say, well, this is what we want to achieve, or this is not something we ought to be doing. They tended to look into their religious traditions to find some of those answers. The other is they thought that coming, as many of them did, uh, closer to World War II, that science had been perverted into the uh, abuse of the Holocaust. And that weighed heavily on the minds of a lot of people, uh, sort of uh, Nazi race hygiene as the driver to uh, events in, in Germany and leading to the World War and so on, um, but even echoing around the United States in terms of uh, uh, thinking about uh, race and immigration, and in many other countries as well, it was on their minds too. So they worried that science not only didn't tell them where to go, it might easily be captured or perverted uh, into uh, social goals or political purposes that they had to oppose. So you get a kind of opposition in bioethics to a lot of what science is saying, partly out of worry about history, partly out of uh, what you were calling the cold facts don't help us uh, find direction. What, what happened in the past 30 years is that it turned out that uh, it's hard to speak religion in public. And bioethics grapples with a bunch of policy questions that are very much democratic political issues, whether it's human experimentation, or I guess I have to say this, uh, how many babies you can have if you go to a fertility clinic, or who gets organs for transplant, or uh, uh, whether we make GMO foods, or Another topic, soon to be timely, whether we create synthetic life forms. All of those issues get debated in public places. And if someone comes in and says, speaking as an Orthodox Jew, I think this. Speaking as a Mormon, I believe this. Speaking as a Hindu, I think this. Speaking as a member of the United Church of Christ, I believe this. That can enter into the political debate, but there's a fair amount of wariness. And so bioethics went secular, not because it doesn't find things of utility in religion. It does, it did. It became secular because it was the only way to speak in public without triggering off kind of 
turf fights and territorial reactions. That's, that's sort of why it sounds as secular as it does, I think. I can appreciate that bioethics found it useful to draw upon religion this way. I just wonder if in the end there isn't also a deeper conflict epistemologically because of the different ways of knowing between these two camps. I mean, there, there in my mind is a huge difference in knowing something because it is revel has been revealed through revelation or received wisdom. It's another thing to know it because you did the experiment and you found out from empirical evidence how something works. And I have to admit that one of the things that worries me as we try to bridge the gap between these two worlds is that especially to the extent we're talking about policy issues, and I want to a little bit later in this discussion really focus on some policy issues as we are want to do in think tanks. Uh, <laughs> but, but isn't there a risk in having a revelatory way of knowing creep into uh, public life when there are some as, as you've said yourself, some real empirical issues that we need to deal with that are not necessarily going to be solved by people's intuitions uh, as, tr as trustworthy as they may feel at the time. I, I worry yeah. that it, 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 it creates a way of thinking that doesn't serve society in some crucial areas. Well, um, I think that what I would like to do is shift what you're saying a little bit and actually argue that there's a larger sphere than you're allowing for of different ways of knowing. All right? It, there are interpretive products that have come out of evolutionary biology, sociobiology being one of them. But this is an interpretation. It is deductive. Excuse me, it's not deductive, it's inductive. And you don't do double blind, uh, a randomized trials of whether or not um, you've got a, um, let's say, a, uh, a social fitness benefit to religion. Okay, there's a social fitness benefit to religion, which is something socio some sociobiologists have argued. Where's the other world? Where's the non-religious world that you're using for your trial? You don't got it. And so I think that looking at these as different epistemologies, which bring a lens to a very highly contested area of philosophy, which is what does it mean to be human? And it's better when we have these uh, um, even argumentative dialogues that nevertheless are fleshing out the problem. In, in, in the case that you're describing, Art, the, uh, the question is, can you, from a particular religious tradition, translate your religious uh, perspective sufficiently that you can make a compelling case in the public square. If you can't translate, you can't speak the speak, you can't talk the talk, and you're not actually being all that helpful. So, so let me jump in with uh, three quick points just about this epistemological or how we know things problem. Um, one is, I think that uh, there is a difference. Sometimes people who believe in intelligent design and biblical literalism will say, look, um, evolution can't be proven. And we ought to teach some forms of intelligent design as a uh, part of science in the classroom because uh, evolution uh, has many things it can't explain or things are too complex, and it's a theory. Science, I think, depends upon testability and contingent truth in order to advance. And I've always found that odd as an argument from, a, from any religion, whatever it is, that would want to be considered part of science, 
it does seem to me science doesn't have oodles of room. I won't say none, but it doesn't have oodles for faith. I mean, it's got a little bit because there's certainly, you know, you can't prove induction is true. You've got to have faith that what you believe based on the past is kind of going to hold into the future. There are a few faith-based or faith-looking-like principles. But in general, everything up for grabs, everything to be challenged. So in, in, in that sense, there does seem to me to be in a, a kind of parallel to kind of how you think about things. That's the first point. Second, I think there's two things going on with religion that made Darwin nervous, that make us nervous. Uh, one is whether revealed truths or things we believe in a religious sense uh, really are true and does evolution falsify in it. So there's this biblical story, looks like it's in trouble according to evolution. I think that bothered Darwin. But different from that is, are human beings special? And where's free will? And where's kind of the autonomy that we, particularly in America, are all wrapped up in? If you have this biological account that we all got here by a random walk, kind of knuckle walking around in the jungle for a while, and then some lucky mutation made somebody invent a stick that they could whack, you know, sort of Stanley Kubrick style, um, where's the dignity? And I think Darwin was troubled not just by knocking around his wife's perhaps faith in biblical inerrancy, but if you look at the books like Expression of Emotion in Animals and Man, he's worrying that, boy, uh, we're getting closer to the animals and further away from the angels, and what are we, uh, the, the, the sort of uh, value of humanity itself is being uh, challenged by this contingent evolutionary cap. Last quick, so something to wrestle with, it's not just evolution, it's sort of having a scientific explanation of who we are, does that make us less than uh, dignified, if you will, or take away some of our value? And then I think the third issue that comes up in the religion, sort of science standoff in the way we're talking about it now, you look at the uh, accounts that evolutionists give, and what they're basically saying is not just that they can explain religion, well, some do. I have to say this because David Sloan Wilson didn't make it, so I'll, I'll play his role for a second here. Our minds, our entire cognitive apparatus is set up to want to have certain beliefs that are of value, and groupthink, religious think, is one of them. So it isn't that religion is true or false. It's kind of the natural outcome of the cognitive brain that we have, but that kind of takes away a little bit of the allure because you're just... You know, you're following around things that uh, just turned out to be wired into us. It could have been different. We, you know, we all could have been Wiccan. This is what works. Uh, you know. Self-deception. That was a joke, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Self-deception clearly is adaptive in a lot of areas of life. Um, I think uh, socially, uh, in religious terms, I think... It's interesting that 79% from the last poll I saw of people believe literally in angels, so you don't have to worry too much about you know, <laughs> Which way bi biology there? taking this away from people. I actually think that the issue of the specialness of humans and our separation from other species is, is a huge issue for a lot of people. And let me just make my pitch right now because it comes up so often. Oh, as Sally said, I don't want to believe that I'm descended from monkeys. If, if you'd walk away with nothing else from this room today, let's, how about these two things? First of all, we're more closely related to apes than we are to monkeys, okay? So it isn't about <laughs> monkeys at all. It's about <laughs> chimps and bonobos, okay? And we're not descended from chimps or bonobos. We have a common ancestor. So we've been going our own way, and they're not uh, before us. They're alongside us. So there's just a, a, a quick tutorial that we can throw in there. But... Uh, 
I, I do think there's, a, there's a, a, a terrible conflict coming up because the more research that gets done on, on animal behavior, the more evidence, Franz de Waal, uh, among others, finding these things, the more evidence there seems to be that uh, animals, simply many animals, not, not just primates, are capable of expressing sympathy, of, of caring for each other, caring for, for others. Um, does it matter in the end if we're not so special? This, this was always one of the big uh, claims to fame for religion, wasn't it? That we were created in God's yeah. image and you know, we're special. Uh, it's, it's hard to drop from that Well, pedestal. you know, it's worse than you think. That we share 90% of our genes with mice, right. you know, and I've certainly sat with people. share about 85% with corn smut. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> and I've, I've sat with people. Speak for at, yourself. <laughs> dinner parties that are not as interesting as corn smut. So um, uh, uh, this is entirely true. But when I wrote Adam, Eve, and the Genome, what I was arguing is from a feminist theological perspective, this is good news. And I just want to bracket that for a second and say, in Darwin's experience of slavery and his sense not only of the degradation of human beings as slaves, but the bestiality, and he uses bestiality as a term, of slaveholders, what slavehold actually helped him see how it was not that big a break uh, between the animals and the human. Mm -hmm. And so this has social policy implications. Uh, um, one of my favorite theologians, Reinhold Niebuhr, was once asked if Adam and Eve in the garden and the story of the fall was literally true. Mm -hmm. And Reinhold Niebuhr said, no, it's truer than that. <laughs> and the one thing I'll submit I can prove empirically is human sin. So, so you know, the, 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 for me, the good news of the Human Genome Project was lords of creation, not happening. Human species solidarity, good news from a feminist perspective. We are one. Human individuality. Each person, DNA fingerprints would be an example of this. Each person is special and unique, supports our views of democracy. So I found, from a feminist theological perspective, the evidence of the Human Genome Project was proving things that feminists in theology had been saying for a very long time and being blown off. So I think there's, again, there's an imaginative play that can happen when you're not interested in simply trouncing each other. Um, and you know, you're, you're never going to prove or disprove the presence of God in human experience, because it's numinous. I mean, that's just, just the way it is. So if you just get past that, then I think it opens up um, very much more a one world approach to how we deal with knowing what it means to be you know, human and also what it means to be creature. I, I'd just be curious to see what you think. A lot of people find part compatibility between evolution and religion by pushing back to that, uh, the, the, the ultimate creator. So, you know, we're okay, evolution chugs along, and God is kind of like the initial domino player. Mm -hmm. Sort of like, and then all right. this stuff happens and we figure out the rules, but we don't have much to say about you know, the initial uh, domino or the Big Bang Theory kind of wimps out at the beginning. <laughs> that doesn't seem to me to give us a very rich picture, picture though, of a god, and maybe it doesn't give us a very 
I don't know, uh, uh, ornate enough uh, uh, view about uh, God's role in the world. So I, don't, it, I mean, I, I'm tempted to say I can make those go along, <laughs> right. but at least with a pretty skeletal, you know, view of the divine. I, I, you know, I'd like to throw in my two cents in your direction yeah, yeah. on that as well, because this actually comes up in an interesting way in an article uh, this past month in the New Republic by Jerry Coyne, who talks about uh, some of these issues and, and makes the point that if you do define your God in the end as being that far upstream, mm -hmm. uh, which I'm comfortable doing too, and in fact I write about this in, in my piece mm -hmm. tomorrow, um, so that, okay, creation, even science can't deal with what happened with creation, so we're all on equal footing in this mm -hmm. case. Nobody knows how it happened. Um, but you end up with a sort of meaningless God. This is sort of yeah. the... Uh, the pantheistic naturalism that, you know, well, he, he's everywhere, he does everything, and so he's nothing. Um, he's not even the a truth, he. Uh, right, right. <laughs> uh, you know, the problem uh, I find is that uh, while we might all find some common ground way up there, upstream, is that most people I run into on the street who are into religion, who are religious, are not there at all. Um, and in fact, they're, they're much further downstream and they're sort of in my face with their personal God and all the things that he is supposedly doing in, in the world. How far upstream are you willing to go? <laughs> well, you know, that you know, domino God is not all that helpful in the emergency room. In right. Yep. But intercessionary prayer doesn't yeah. work according to studies. Yeah, so. And we tried it earlier to get David Sloan Wilson uh, here on time. <laughs> um, so um, he did not adapt. Right. Yeah. You know, but uh, um, the I very deliberately use the word presence. Okay. I can tell you that I experience God's presence not only in my own life but also within our struggles to make a more just and decent world that there is a partnership, there's an energy. And the closest secular analogy I could give you to this is school spirit, okay? There is a spirit that is shared within human communities that simply, you may account for it biologically, but it is difficult to account for when it's absent in some communities as well. And so I, I actually find, first of all, God infinite. Right? So we're not finite here. We're not going to get there from here. So in the sense of respecting a certain awe, mystery, and majesty of God, as well, people of faith will simply say to you, you know, that this is what I experienced. This mm -hmm. is my personal experience of the divine moving within my life. And you can uh, 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 actually push back at that, which I have. Uh, I have for many, many years been a battered women's counselor. God wants me to submit. Mm, let's work on that. And so um, I think that, you know, that's not an absolute. It's not an absolute. We have to ask, you know, how godlike is that? Um, does, does God set some people up to be beaten? Not, not the God that I worship. So I think there is more play here than you may acknowledge. However, I think a place where we're all falling down, and, and we're doing this at the University of Chicago in terms of uh, uh, bioethical questions, involve the community, involve religious communities in wrestling with some of these questions to try to subvert which I, what I think is a set-up divide. I think it has a political agenda, and I think its political agenda is to polarize and to manipulate. 
And so more and more, I think, progressives in science, progressives in religion, need to engage the public in order to be able to bring people into these decision-making processes, and they themselves will begin to realize, A, they don't understand evolution as well as they think they uh, do, and B, that there are far more ways their religious traditions can engage these things creatively. It, you know, it's interesting when you read Darwin's notebooks, the blessed notebooks, <laughs> uh, he, he actually has uh, a passage in one of his books where he talks about the fact your mic needs to be replaced. I'm good. Oh. Um, <laughs> only practically, not spiritually. <laughs> um, he talks about his doubts because he, for so long, had felt the presence of God in the way that, that you're talking about, mm -hmm. Susan, and that was his uh, part of his evidence. I mean, how can you deny this, this overwhelming feeling of his presence? And he started to ask himself towards the end of his life, you know, what does that really tell me? What kind of evidence is this? Because I also have these very similar feelings when I listen to beautiful music. And is there, is there anything different about the feeling I'm getting on the one hand that supposedly was due mm -hmm. to the presence of God, and on the other hand, just from listening to music, or is music perhaps a manifestation mm -hmm. of God? We can, we can get into that. But it's, uh, it, it still gets stuck in my mind in this epistem epistemological problem that your experience is, is one thing it, it doesn't provide uh, convincing evidence to anyone who's not uh, having that experience. Just to jump on this, not to <laughs> beat on you, but just to let the audience come into this uh, agony that Rick and I are sharing a little bit about, the, this notion of the presence. The, uh, <laughs> and that is why uh, I think Wilson is just wrong. <laughs> Thank and you very it, much. And that is why no one could believe what was. Um, the other day I had a guy in uh, an office at the University of Pennsylvania, and he said that uh, he wanted to donate a kidney to a stranger. And he said that Jesus had called upon him to come and do this. So the issue is schizophrenic or feeling the presence of God. Mm -hmm. And how are you going to empirically ascertain the difference anyway? I mean, we did ask if he belonged to a church and were there other people uh, that he shared his particular religious beliefs with, and there were. Mm -hmm. So he came, it wasn't just an isolated person. But that, of course, doesn't mean that he can't be hearing voices as a member of a church. Or what did he mean when he said mm -hmm. Jesus called upon him to come help a stranger? And, and why would membership in a church really be the deciding factor in the society is something I want to understand. There are people with uh, this syndrome called apotemnophilia who have just an overwhelming urge to have a limb removed. I mean, it, they just are not yeah. going to feel yeah. right until yeah. their arm is cut off. Yeah. And they go to their doctor and they say, please cut off my arm. Now, why should membership in a church be the deciding factor uh, yeah, in whether the doctor thinks this is an ethical thing to do or not. I, I don't know that it's reflect. deciding. It's just part of a, an isolated person who comes out of the blue, probably going to treat him more warily than someone who said, this is what my group believes and I was inspired by common beliefs with others. doesn't make them right, and it doesn't mean right. they're all not hearing voices or whatever. But, you know, that's, that's, in, that's epistemology sort of in... Uh, in the hardest, uh, most direct form of tr sort of saying, well, you know, nobody hears voices like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Jesus doesn't talk to you that way, does he? And he says, yeah, he does. No. Well, that's so. why, you know, it's not the end of a conversation to say, mm -hmm. 
God said, God, I mean, this is your point about trying to make a case in the public square, right? right? It's the beginning of a conversation. It is not the end. But it's, uh, um, uh, I have, did not go to Dayton to view the Charles Darwin uh, um, <laughs> thing, but I have been to the Creation Science Museum yeah. in Kentucky. Yeah. And I went with members of the Field Museum because they wanted me to go along to help them interpret this phenomenon. This is the Young Earthers. It's a museum that the Earth, proving that the Earth is 6,000 years old. Triceratops with a saddle on it. Yeah, well, you come in, ride. there's a Garden of Eden that's animatronic. There are children playing with dinosaurs. And you say to yourself, is this the Flintstones? <laughs> and yet, this is a, it's a closed world. It's a very closed world. And one of the things we came away concluding is this is not where to start to open a dialogue to help more people under people of faith understand evolution you don't start at the extremes you start at the you know the movable middle and the people at the field museum in chicago believe in the failure of the school systems to teach evolution the museums are going to have to pick up the slack and so they have been doing a lot of teaching about evolution but that's where you have to try to move the middle and but not let religion get away with that it's a trump card you know mm -hmm. show me your stuff um, it, there's got to be more to it than that and that's why you pursued um, uh, uh, questioning this you know, where does this fit within mm -hmm. your life mm -hmm. are you atoning mm -hmm. for the death of your wife mm -hmm. are you you know there are many religious motivations that would still not indicate suitability for transplant yep. So um, it could be genuinely religious and still have that person be rejected. Let me just interrupt for one second before we head maybe into some policy questions. But I wonder, is it possible to get David Mike to maybe at least get him in on some of the discussion? Uh, we'll, tr we'll, we'll try to make that, that happen. Do we? Great. Pick up your chair and walk, David. Oh, sorry. All right. We're actually going to We're evolving. <laughs> We're, we're adapting. We're adapting. becoming more biodiverse. Um, uh, well, so sorry to be late. Um, you know, one of the issues policy-wise that I wanted to get into, and I'm going to throw this maybe to Art first, and then uh, David will, will start uh, integrating. But one thing that's going on in evolution these days with regard to science is that we are starting to take a greater uh, hand in our own evolution. We are gaining the capability of changing ourselves, improving ourselves. Um, you don't have to read much past the sports pages to get a, <laughs> to get a piece of this, but it's not only there. Um, and it goes backwards in time as well to, the, to the, area, the area of embryo selection and how is it any different to get a, a better embryo than it is to send your kid to a good school. We all want the best for ourselves and our kids. Um, I, I wonder if, if you'd like to uh, get into our, the sort of questions that are raised with regard to taking the reins of our own evolution and whether this reflects somehow a striving for the sacred and a desire for perfection, or is it just mm. narcissism gone wild? <laughs> well, I don't, I, I'm not sure. I don't know if it's narcissism gone wild. I think part of it, uh, touches on something Susan said, if you live in a hyper-capitalistic, individualistic society, some of it is just a reflection of wanting to get ahead, get an edge. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some of that going on with some of it. But uh, since David came, uh, I can sort of put one way in which biology and uh, the drive to do good, which is, you know, I mean, most 
parents, if you ask them, what do you want for your kids, they'll say, well, I want a better life. And one way to do that is to improve their lot. And one way to do that is to send them off to tennis camp or send them off to the University of Chicago. You wouldn't send them to some dump like Penn. <laughs> and you might send them uh, to intern at the CAP. And all kinds of things could be done to improve their minds. But you also might say, I'm going to try and cure them of their afflictions and diseases and maybe design them a little bit so that they avoid certain things and certain things are improved by way of capacity. But biology sets some limits. When I look at, for example, what's going on with uh, biobanking and personalized medicine on the internet. So I see sites that say, get a diet designed for your genome. Find a mate who's genomically compatible with your genome. I think Craig Venter put that up. Um, <laughs> look for uh, ways to uh, avoid all diseases. Now, Biology doesn't know the answers to any of this stuff yet. And so we can say with some certainty that some of the improvement stuff is hype, ripping people off, just uh, the worst kind of exploitation. Some of that goes on when you're selecting the embryos now. Right. I'm going to make you an embryo that avoids these diseases. Well, if you just have a test for breast cancer and you kind of screen for it, that just leaves, you know, 99.999% of the genome that you don't know what's going on when you did that one. You're kind of looking where the street lamp is to make a metaphor. So to some extent, improvement sometimes can be buffered or drawn in mm -hmm. by what science has to say. On the other hand, I certainly do find it difficult, and I've said so in print a number of times, to understand why it is that many people who strive to send their kids to elite schools and pull them out of public school and send them to private school get worked up when somebody says, well, I wouldn't mind tweaking a gene that would let my kid have 10% more memory. I mean, on the one hand, you can spend a fortune and drive the kid crazy studying and passing all, and taking Kaplan courses and doing, not with a C, by the way, um, <laughs> taking all kinds of uh, uh, steps to improve them. And at the other, when it becomes biological, that's more off limits. I don't see that as particularly pertinent or different. So I think biology can, should be telling us what's possible. It doesn't tell us what we ought to do, but at least can tell us what we can do. And some of what we're doing now is just wrong, because it's right. way outside what anybody can do. But in principle, I'm not as bothered about optimization biologically as others are. So then it becomes a matter of public policy, how we're going to deal with these things. And I, I, did, I asked that a little bit as a setup for something I want to bring you in on, David, because you have this interesting idea that you've put together, a, another think tank, a competing think tank. Uh, <laughs> no, no, mutualistic think tank. <laughs> but uh, mutualistic. And anyway, it's not in Washington, so it's not going to count for a while. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but welcome yeah. to CAP. <laughs> This is slow yeah. messages from the prairie. <laughs> right. This is, a, this is really a cool idea, I think, though. What he's put together is a, is a think tank that comes up with policy recommendations, if, if, if I understand this correctly, not based on political philosophy, which is usually how things are done here, or on religious uh, instincts, as, as some places uh, also do, like the, uh, uh, the Discovery Institute, but on the basis of the rules of, of natural selection and evolution. It's basically a WW, you know, NS, right? What would natural selection do? <laughs> um, correct me if I'm wrong. And it, it, I've been trying to roll through my mind you know, well, would that come up with progressive policies 
or really right-wing policies, or does it depend on the question? But it's, it's a very interesting thing to start thinking about. What would happen if we started building public policy around not issues of left-right science or religion, but just how does it work in the natural world? Okay, that's my intro. That's yeah. it. Go ahead and read. Well, I think we will look back, and we will look back with amazement at uh, how we survived without evolutionary theory for so long. Uh, to address your first question, uh, we're a cultural species. We're the quintessential cultural species. That means we've been modifying our environment from day one, using whatever tools and technology we have available. Whether it's narcissistic or not depends on whether we try to modify the environment for our own gain or for our collective gain. Mm. And of course, both of those things are going on. So I think when you see our current efforts to manipulate genes and so on, we see sort of the full panoply. It's just you know, human nature trying to, trying to improve our environments. Is some of it misled? Absolutely. Is some of it deceptive, driven by consumerism? Absolutely. Is some of it uh, uh, for the good of the group? Uh, absolutely. And so this really, in a sense, is business as usual, even though it does present us with fresh um, problems. So a point that I want to make, and I have to speak telegraphically because I'm, I'm so late, is that there's more to evolution than genetic evolution. And so when we think about like managing our genes and, and uh, altering our genetic uh, uh, destiny, uh, we also need to think about altering our cultural evolutionary destiny. And it's one of the main tools in the evolutionary toolkit is that uh, you know, we're adapted primarily for Stone Age environments. And that means, among other things, small-scale social interactions. So in small groups, we do what comes naturally. And uh, you know, that sort of runs itself. But in large groups, you know, all hell breaks loose. And so we see one of the things that, uh, that evolutionary theory can, uh, um, uh, could contribute to public policy formulation is, first of all, how do we manage large-scale social interactions in the first place? That is a novel environmental problem. And we need to know what is our innate psychology for social preferences and social behaviors, which works pretty well in a small group context. And what do we need to add to that in order to make it work in a large group context? Well, that, that's one, one uh, a really interesting question that you could approach from an evolutionary perspective. Is that where religion comes in? Religions are really good for turning human groups into beehives. And so the answer and is... that's a good thing? <laughs> uh, well, it's both good and bad, isn't it? Uh, again, I wish I had so much more time with you, and it's my own fault that I don't. But uh, you know, evolution offers a number of theories of religion. Uh, mm -hmm. Evolutionists ask the following questions for all traits. Is it adaptive or not? If it's adaptive, is it for the good of the group? Is it for the good of the individual? Or if it's a cultural trait, is it just good for itself? Is it a parasitic means? If it's not adaptive, is it a byproduct? Was it adaptive in past environments? Or maybe it's neutral? All of these lead to theories of religion. Okay, very different vision of religion. It turns out the one that is most correct, most correct because there's no single theory, is that religions are, do a pretty darn good job of converting groups into adaptive units at at least a certain scale. Well, and that's a good thing and also a bad thing. This is a pretty cold view of religion, it seems to me. Mm. Are you comfortable with that? You don't know a lot of liberal Protestants, do you? <laughs> no, actually I do. We don't. Uh, <laughs> really all go in the same direction all the time. Um, the question that I have, even though, if I'll answer that in a second, but um, uh, most of the scientific critics, or a great many critics of sociobiology that I have read are women. Where are you going to guard against 
race bias, gender bias, ethnocentric bias in your definition of the collective? How are you going to do that? Okay, this is not a danger of evolution. This is a danger of human nature. There were, there was yeah. groups and racism and, uh, and discrimination of all sorts. You know, uh, I like to say the world was not a, it's not the case that the world was a nice place before Darwin and then became mean on the basis <laughs> of Darwin's uh, theory. Yeah. No, and I'm so, talking about in your institute, in your institute's work. If you're to follow the rules to? of natural selection in the, creating, in the creation of policy, policy. Mm -hmm. does that not lean towards a plan that leaves us open to these discriminatory practices? Surely not. Not? No, no. Just and I mean, it helps it's to, it helps red to in take tooth and claw, no? What's that? Isn't it, isn't it going to be a red in tooth and claw kind of a, a policy-making body? Please. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, there's so much to discuss, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, um, first of all, evolution is not nature red in tooth and claw. And it's a very common misconception of evolution that it explains selfishness well and altruism poorly. Mm -hmm. What evolution does do is explain the full range of human behaviors from, from selfish to altruistic as social strategies which succeed under some circumstances and not others, knowing that. And with everybody's moral intention of making the world a better place, what would public policy be but something which is intended for everyone's good? In that case, you can use the tools of evolutionary theory to tilt the playing field, to create social environments, and so that altruism is the successful strategy and selfishness is the unsuccessful strategy so that you can swim downstream with evolution, not upstream. Mm -hmm. But the moral objective or the policy objective of a think tank such as the Evolution Institute is exactly the same as the policy objectives of any think tank, conservative or liberal which are, after all, well-meaning in their own way. They might differ in the policies that they think are going to be for the, best, for the good of the group, but there's, I don't know of any many think tanks that publicly say, you know, I just want to benefit us and to hell with them. That's, that's the Actually, that's not true. Because that's the yeah, right. <laughs> no, Every I man for himself. <laughs> and, when, and when it comes to liberalism and conservatism, when it comes to liberalism and conservatism, this is extremely interesting from an evolutionary perspective. It's not the case that evolution is going to provide ammunition for one and not the other. Guess what? These are cultural forms which coexist in everyday life and always have. And so whenever you see two cultural systems, or actually a whole uh, diversity of cultural systems, like a multi-species ecosystem that coexist with each other, you need to explain why they all have their respective niches. Uh, institute is one that, uh, in a sense, will use evolution instrumentally to help us get to goals that we reach consensus on, or do you think we're going to peer into evolution and find out where we ought to go? Uh, for the most part, the former. You know, I mean, and this really, um, uh, I mean, the beauty is in the detail. So one of our focus foci is early, uh, is childhood education. Okay, and here's something which is like a no-brainer in retrospect. So, something that's always taken place in, in small-scale human society uh, is that people touched each other, <laughs> and that was a good thing, and uh, that was a nurturing sort of a thing. That, and they was, also, that was before the invention of lawyers, I believe. Uh, yeah, and, and, <laughs> and they also moved a lot. They moved their bodies a lot, okay? Now, these are two things that actually have been eliminated from some school settings. There's no touch policies. And no reason. And you, and you force people to sit for hours and <coughs> hours 
and ours. And it goes on from there. And so this is like you know, evolution 101. If you look at you know, how human social environments have, have always been up until very recently, you discover that, that, uh, that current practices, in this case school practices, are, although of course they have a surface logic, that's why we do them, they result in a perfect storm of bad practices as far as what we're all trying to achieve. Another one is age segregation. In cultures around the world, children have grown up in mixed age settings and they've learned primarily from older children, not from, not from adults. And learning has taken place in the context of, of play, self-directed play. Maybe we could use some of these things. And these end up being like no-brainers in retrospect, but for some reason that's not what current educational practice is. So that's what's taking what everyone wants to do. And it's providing a set of tools which are highly intuitive, but guess what? We just didn't arrive at them, did we? Because that's why we have these problems. So this is like you know, simple solutions based on evolutionary theory. That's why I think you know, it might seem shocking to say that we're going to look back and say, how do we survive without evolutionary theory? But that, that one example is going to replicate itself again and again and again. So, uh, but it, <laughs> you missed my saying that sin is the one uh, aspect of Christian doctrine I can prove. Yeah. Human beings, simply descriptively, choose to sabotage their own best practices. Not just a little bit of the time, quite a lot of the time, and they do it in the name of good. So how, I mean this sounds to me like Dewey's Little Red Schoolhouse. So how are you going to account for that aspect of human nature? I'm not even saying religion, I mean religion accounts for this, but even in a humanist account, how are you going to propagate policy when human beings actually repetitively, present school system being in a case in point, screw it up? Okay. Uh, there's more than one answer to this question. One has to do with what's called discounting the future. One reason that we behave stupidly is that we're actually behaving smart with respect to immediate, and I mean really immediate goals. This is what it means to be impulsive. But the long-term consequences, hang the long-term consequences. And so as with so many other things, there's social situations and there's psychological contexts in which actually there's a superb evolutionary logic for maximizing your short-term gain and discounting the future. And so one of the things you want to do is you want to find social environments and manage people's state of mind so that actually they can be long-term planners, so that they will decide, for example, to accept you know, $100 a year from now rather than $10 today. And there's tons of research to back this up. So one, that's one part of it. Another part of it goes back to the costs and benefits of self-serving strategies versus group-serving uh, strategies. And there are proven programs. There's a huge literature on this, so we're not just coming out of left field here. There are very excellent programs which show that you can install a culture in a classroom, for example, which cultivates good behavior. It's called the good behavior game. It's been implemented in Baltimore, some of the toughest school in Baltimore, in addition to, in addition to other places, that, that dramatically improves the culture, the classroom culture, favors cooperation, and, and uh, doesn't eliminate, but greatly reduces uh, self, not just self-serving strategies, but strategies which anyone would call stupid. Right? Except they're not, because in an extremely local context, 
you know, when Johnny Badass laughs and his classmates giggle, that is positively reinforcing for that, that behavior. There's a little bit of stuff that's going on there. And so there is this kind of management that can take place so that we can take the behaviors which most of us would like to see reduced and we can reduce them. That's a promissory note. Our time here is short. But uh, it's not the case that you know, we're going to be permanently stuck with anti-social uh, behavior. It depends on the social environment that we create for ourselves. Our time here is short is a prescient <laughs> comment there, and I wanted to have a little bit of time left for questions, which we're going to do now. I'll just say at the end here that your comment about how historically kids learned more from other older kids than adults reminded me of a great line that a five-year-old or so told me many years ago. She said, there's two kinds of people in the world, kids and dolts. <laughs> <laughs> so she got it who she was going to be learning from. Yeah. I think the question that is outstanding at this point, and we won't answer it today, is whether there's going to be a future battle uh, in Washington over whether f federal funds should go to not only religious schools, but natural selection schools. But we won't get into that right now. Um, first, uh, if there's a question from anyone here from the media, I want to entertain that or those first. Is there anyone here from media with a question? And otherwise, go ahead and uh, let's, let's hear from the audience. Uh, David Harris. Um, it's amazing to me we're still debating some of the same questions uh, we did 150 years ago. And uh, Darwin's bulldog, Thomas Huxley, uh, debated uh, Bishop Wilberforce at Oxford. Um, well, uh, the, the bishop said, uh, is it through your grandmother or grandfather that you trace your ancestry to an ape? And he, and he responded, I can't remember the exact words, something to the line of, I would rather be descended from an honest primate than, uh, than be uh, related to a man of uh, superior intelligence who uses his gifts to deliberately distort the truth. And I think as his as, as wife uh, uh, said uh, about evolution, uh, uh, dear, let us pray that it is not true. But if it is true, that it not be widely known. <laughs> uh, I don't have no response to that. Yeah. Does anyone want well, to I have a quick response, which is that uh, part of evolution 101 is that the mind is adapted to, to adopt beliefs, not for their truth content, but for their fitness value. And I think one of the th reasons that religious beliefs seem so puzzling to us, especially to the scientific imagination, and why we're dumbfounded when people don't accept a well-supported truth such as the uh, the theory of evolution is that we have this gold standard in mind is that if something is factually correct then everyone's supposed to believe in it. But that's dumb <laughs> from an evolutionary perspective. Ideas are adopted on the base, primarily on the basis of their consequences. And of course in a modern world it's very important for our beliefs to be based on good facts. It's more important than ever before than to have a good body of factual information that we then consult with a uh, value system, but not with a good value system. But nobody should be surprised when people adopt adaptive fictions. And adaptive fictions are abundant outside of religion in addition to inside of religion. So before we throw stones, <laughs> let us examine non-religious belief systems for adaptive distortions of 
reality. You know, uh, you're, you're I would say market fundamentalism would be a good place <laughs> to start. You're, you're reminding me of uh, one of the great adaptive fictions that I was complaining about earlier about genetic testing online. One of the uh, <laughs> things you can do there uh, for a sum of money is you can discover your ancestors. And it's amazing to me that no one does not have a distinguished ancestor <laughs> as they trace back. So you don't get this sort of lineage of there was a serf and a bum and a, a robber and a Cretan. And a, it's all, well, I could trace back and there's some of their Shakespeare and then I was the knight of the manor. And then it, right. so these adaptive tales of how we come to be are very much part of what even genetics is selling these days. And, and it goes back far before genetics and science. I remember back in my old days in California where some of my best friends were psychics. Uh, uh, the stories they would tell people when they'd come in oh, just to psychically lives. find yeah. about their yeah. Somehow all of them were, you know, best friends with Cleopatra. <laughs> I mean, not everyone could have been close friends with Cleopatra. And, and scientific theories are not immune. Back to your point about women. If you look at 19th mm -hmm. century scientific theories of, of, of women, and the nature of women, I mean, they are outrageous today, and yet that mm -hmm. was scientific truth. And the and you really have to worry, you know. I mean, science works well when when scientists disagree with each other, but when mm -hmm. when all scientists collectively sort of think that something is reasonable, then I think there's a sense in which science itself is just as prone to adaptive fictions as um, as um, other belief systems. Well, we won't and let, you know. Let's just say uh, uh, flat out that a great deal of the controversy between religion and science is political marketing. I mean, this is a constructed conflict. Uh, and that it serves, I don't think particularly spiritual ends. I think it serves mm -hmm. political ends. And I will speak simply for progressives in religion. We have not been there in the public square challenging uh, uh, certainly absurdities like the Creation Science Museum and the Young Earthers, but as well, uh, I mean, I've written about intelligent design, but you, you just need to do it more because the, the voices that wish to construct a top-down theological argument are collaborating with a top-down political argument. And so where's the alternative? And if progressives in religion and progressives in science don't make as much uh, noise in the public square and say, wait a minute, there's I've been tons of creative religious uh, going back for the same 150 years, creative theological approaches, T.R. de Chardin, process theology, contemporary engagements with science, all of these things are also religion. And it transcends Christianity and, and is through other religions as well. There's a political purpose to this. It's not falling from the sky. Got some questions over here? I'm Victor Stone, and I would like to ask uh, about the last comment, uh, or actually the last two comments. Uh, it seemed to me that there is not a lot of disagreement that the Earth is millions of years old. Are you saying that that's not a fact because all scientists agree uh, that that's an adaptive fiction? It seems to me that's the most difficult thing for many of these other religions to accept. And you seem to think, at least if I hear you correctly, that uh, uh, you'd rather have scientists disagree on that. Uh, you don't think that there's anything in that. Excuse me, let me clarify what I was saying. I'm a real optimist and booster of science. When it comes to science, I'm a true believer. 
I think that, uh, <laughs> I think that uh, you know, the only way for us to apprehend reality is for us to hold each other accountable for our factual statements. And when something is true, such as the, o the ancient age of the earth, then science can bring everyone to that agreement. Okay? So, uh, so yes, there are such a thing as facts out there, and we can apprehend them through the scientific uh, process. But unfortunately, uh, there are also situations when, uh, 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 when uh, fictions nevertheless seem so reasonable to everyone who calls themselves a scientist, uh, for example, that women are inferior to men, if all the men are scientists, and they all said that seems perfectly reasonable to them, uh, then, uh, then they are probably, there's not the self-correcting uh, mechanism within the scientific community in order to alter that. And so there's very good examples of, and, and, and often it does have to do with gender. Uh, for example, you know, if you looked at what male primatologists, how they were interpreting uh, the social lives of primates, <laughs> it was very Germanic. Uh, until women came into the field, and then, uh, and then that provided the, the differences, basically, that you need in order to sort among um, alternatives. So I think that the science is the best thing that we have, but it's not a straight line to the truth. Uh, and there's, you know, many, many examples. Uh, uh, one example which uh, I think should concern us all is, uh, is um, individualism, the idea that somehow the individual is some privileged level of the hierarchy and that we can have somehow use individual self-interest as a grand principle to explain everything that, uh, right. everything that happens. Well, I'm sorry, uh, that's been, that's been uh, you know, uh, 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 regarded as a scientific truth for the last uh, uh, 50 years, but uh, I think that uh, future events will prove otherwise. Susie, go ahead. Uh, okay, this gentleman here. Thanks. I'm Dan Allen. I'm a student. I was hoping to ask a question to the gentleman who joined us partway through. Just wondering what, what position your think tank or what policy advice you would offer to leaders on um, gay rights policy issues? It's the greatest of questions. <laughs> you know, if you look at homosexuality uh, from, uh, uh, from an evolutionary perspective, all kinds of things break loose. Uh, first of all, it's not the case that all non-human species are heterosexual and that homosexuality is in the absent in the animal world. Secondly, we have to think of sex not just as a mode of reproduction but as a social currency, as a social currency. And as soon as you start thinking of sex as a social currency, then homosexual behavior is, becomes uh, much, much less puzzling. Obligate homosexuality remains a bit of a puzzle, but if you look at homosexuality throughout human cultures, most of the time it's not obligate. And if you, uh, and if you look at the modern form of, of homosexuality, which is sort of consensual, very much like a heterosexual uh, relationship, you'll find that that is actually uh, culturally quite recent. It's a social construction in a sense. Our current intuition about homosexuality is very much a social construction. So. Uh, there's a wonderful story to tell about, about homosexuality from uh, an evolutionary perspective by which we mean not just genetic evolution but cultural evolution. And so uh, I'd be happy to provide a guide to the literature on that for uh, you. Can I, I'm going to jump in here because I want to toss something else on the table that's not as rosy as that tale. Uh, let's say we found a genetic marker that indicated a proclivity for homosexuality. Mm -hmm. And it might be there for the reasons that David's talking about. The question is, would parents then be running off to clinics to get rid of those uh, people who, who are the carriers? Sure. 
This and came my up. answer is this came yes, up. <laughs> they would. Now, I don't think you're going to find an answer. I mean, you may tell that story about the adaptive uh, presence of homosexuality in peoples, the fact that it's in animals, neither here nor there, the fact that it's got a genetic predisposition, natural, unnatural. They probably don't care. What they care about is my kid's going to be worse off in a heterosexual world because they're homosexual. So at the end of the day, I think you're still going to have to resort to an ethical principle to kind of balance off the naturalistic finding. This actually came up with yeah. uh, Al Mohler and yeah. uh, arguing for hormonal treatments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and uh, it, it put um, right-wing Christianity in a very duplicitous situation vis-a-vis -vis, um, interfering with God's design mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. womb. Um, and mm -hmm. um, uh, Moeller actually finally backed off. We've had three men asking questions so far. Here's a woman. There's more than one female. My name is Arielle Gingold. I uh, work at the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism. And my question is, uh, we talked about how we need to have the, the debate in the public square. Um, and, and it seems to me there are two sides of this conversation. On the one hand, there's the religion is not contradictory to evolution. Um, but then when we get back into the public's, the, I'm sorry, the, the public policy side of it, then we get into constitutional issues and where this conversation belongs. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how we answer some of these questions differently when we come to things like intelligent design in public schools and, and the different forums that this conversation tends to happen in and how we combat not just misconceptions in the public square, but also when it comes into more institutional sort of conversations. Well, I can take a little whack at that. Um, it seems to me I don't want any form of intelligent design or creationism taught as science in science classrooms. But I don't mind people talking about religion and spiritual thinking in elementary schools, public schools, and all kinds of places, which seems to me the other, the flip side, that we don't get as much from progressive points of view. Sometimes progressive act as if public institutions, public schools in particular, ought to be sort of uh, uh, secular uh, uh, religion-free zones. Religion-free zones, um, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, push that forward. There's, I mean, whatever one thinks about religion, it obviously has played a major role in human affairs. Evolution has things to say about it. So does psychology. So does anthropology. Um, I think it has its place to be studied, examined, thought about, talked about, but just as religion. So I'm not sure we've done a great job in our zeal to drive, you know, the last ID Texas book purchase approval out of the uh, science classroom and saying, well, you know, on the other hand, you want to talk about it in social studies, you want to talk about it as a biological phenomena within a course on evolution, you want to talk about it just generally in civics or whatever, you know, then mm -hmm. talk about it. Well, it, you need to say it's no science, you know. <laughs> and it's actually quite helpful if religious leaders say, hey, not science, it's a, it's a theological interpretation. You're making an interpretation uh, from a religious standpoint. Cool, good on you, but it's not science. Now, the uh, we can even extend this argument, Art, in terms of uh, Steve Prothero's work on, I mean, we're a nation of religious illiterates. <laughs> um, and, you know, once we let go of the McGuffey Reader, which was a good thing because it was like teaching Protestantism, 
Uh, but nevertheless, where, are, where do you get religious knowledge so that you can understand Shakespeare? You know, if Shakespeare, of course, is even taught in the public schools today. So um, I think that you know, there's, there's a, like a pool. You throw the stone in of your question, and there's just a, a series of circles that uh, come out from it. Um, but I think, again, that, this, let me emphasize that that's why I think religious leaders need to be involved in this discussion in the public square, because got to say from, this is a religious interpretation. It's not particularly mine, but it's yours. And you are free to express that. It just can't be taught as science. Could right. be in social studies class. That would be fine. Of course, when we get beyond schools and into larger areas of public policy, which I think the question also encompassed, uh, we have the question of what, what is this faith-based office going to be in the Obama administration? Not clear yet, but I think that'll be interesting. Uh, where can it's federal dollars? It's faith-based and community partnerships. Okay. And you've got to push the community partnerships <laughs> part as well. Right. Um, I hope that ends up being true. Whether conscience clauses are going to make sense, uh, whether federal dollars can mm -hmm. be spent on areas that are discriminatory with regard to religion. Right, right. Great questions that are going to be very interesting to see how they're answered now that we have a new administration with a new perspective. I think it's still not clear. Uh, by the way, just to take a whack on one of those and other questions out there, but on the issue of conscience, I'm not sure progressives have been particularly distinguished in their response to that, basically saying, you know, fill my prescription, shut up, uh, <laughs> just do what you're told by the doctor kind of thing. I'm not sure that's the right response to what professionals are supposed to do as a matter of conscience. I spent the past 10 days yelling at some doctor who stuck eight embryos into somebody and said, it's a matter of conscience, you shouldn't have done that. Mm -hmm. That was not mm -hmm. an ethical thing to do. Great point. Uh, we're not so sure how to handle conscience, I think, as a public policy matter yet. Uh, this woman here. Hi, I'm Sherry Beck. I work with the Spiral Dynamics Group. And Spiral Dynamics is based on the work of Claire Graves, who discovered uh, through uh, longitudinal psychological studies that the human nature is an oscillating, emergent, cyclical, um, biopsychosocial development process. We call it Spiral Dynamics now for that same reason. But basically, Spiral Dynamics says that there are um, We've, we've uncovered or differentiated eight, and I think there's a ninth emerging, adap um, complex adaptive intelligence in humans that have um, emerged over time in a species and still exist in every single one of us today in various um, chemicals and, and um, combinations. Um, so we're very much online with the evolutionary side of this thing. And my question has to go with the thinking that we've done says that part of the problem with public policy is we try to do one-size-fits-all public policy when there is diversity of the ways that people think and the fact that people change the way they think through the life cycle of, human, um, of, of a human life as well as human life in, um, in total. So I'm just, the question is, like, what is the, what is, primarily, and David, I think, what, if you thought about that in terms of how we actually adjust how we do public policy based on evolutionary theory versus one-size-fits-all. I, I uh, can't comment on your particular approach, but I can certainly affirm what you're uh, talking about in two respects. One is the importance of individual differences. And so, and this needs to be accommodated so that a one-size-fits-all um, uh, so that we do not use a one-size-fits-all approach. That can be tragic. Uh, there's a lovely study that shows that people differ 
in their, um, in their uh, resilience or their susceptibility to environmental influence. It's some genotypes, this is a genetic uh, polymorphism in which some genotypes are what's known in Swedish as dandelion children. Uh, you can run over them with a lawnmower and they'll still pop back up. Mm -hmm. uh, they're very resilient to, to, uh, to harsh environments. Uh, then you have the orchid children, uh, which uh, wilt in a harsh environment, but guess what? They thrive in a nurturing environment, even better than the dandelion children. And this is one of many kinds of, of individual differences that we can expect to, to see, which basically are going to require different optimal uh, developmental environments for different people. So being attuned to individual differences is huge. And then the other point I want to mention very briefly is the idea that um, I, I, you know, I casually mentioned the word beehive, and that raises all sorts of issues. Uh, you said uh, not liberal Protestants, but I'll <laughs> beg to differ. But I think what's, uh, you know, what's really interesting about the concept of a group organism, uh, a group as like an organism, is that the individual has become a node in a system. <coughs> they become participants in a larger level of functional organization, and they're playing their role in ways in which they were completely unaware. And so the idea of being a participant in a larger level organism, to use a, um, a controversial word, is something which is very interesting to explore for our species in addition to such things as social insect colonies, although the difference, of course, will be huge. And individual agency uh, uh, and things that we associate with liberalism can be a part of a highly adaptive system. A liberal, a liberal uh, uh, cultural system can be highly adaptive um, uh, even though uh, the individuals think that they're uh, uh, completely independent and... Uh, <laughs> and we, we do. I can just see uh, Art's op-ed appearing someday about the controversy over testing school children in the first grade to see whether they're dandelions or orchids <laughs> and the mandatory te tests. I think, do we have time for one more question? One more question back on the right there. Hi, Steve Lowe with Washington Area Secular Humanist. Inasmuch as religiosity isn't equally distributed across the population in the universe of humans, has, how close is science getting to explaining why some people are religious or religiously inclined and others are not? One gene study so far that's dopamine. on the correlation, right? Is it, Dean is it Hamer's dopamine? Yeah, but still, I mean, I want to comment on a bias here. <laughs> I hope to piss everyone off by the time I'm done. This is this. This is this relentless drive, this kind of axiomatic drive. A, a, a question like that leads to a gene four answer. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay? And it seems to me that I think another answer, now everything is heritable, including that. So it's not as if that there's not a, a genetically heritable basis for most individual differences. But my answer to that question would be is what everyone's got to have is a value system. Is a value system that takes the facts of the world and endows it with values and then leads to some kind of meaningful behavior. Religion is one kind of value system. There's other value systems which don't count as religion. And so that would explain a lot of the variation in whether people count as religious or not. And then for both people with religious value systems or non-religious value systems, those can well, well work well or poorly. And so I think that what, but what everyone has to have is a value system. And that's because our behaviors do not come directly from our genes. Most of our behaviors come indirectly through our genes and directly through a value system. And uh, uh, let me support that um, in the sense that I observe that 
radical secularists, uh, so let's say Dawkins, Hitchens, and so forth, greatly resemble uh, in their, you know, their, their behaviors, their manifestations, um, the most rabid of Christian fundamentalists. And these folk are up here going, eh, 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 mirroring each other in terms of their behaviors, terministic, reductionistic, and uh, uh, very low tolerance for diversity of opinion. And then there's you know, quite a swath of other folks in the middle who uh, are not quite as polarized. And so um, I would think that the distributions may even be more diverse. And I would tend to agree with David on this. So my comment is uh, genetics will have nothing of interest to say about religiosity in individual persons for a long time. But I suspect biology might shed some light on the culture of uh, religiosity, it might have something to say from an evolutionary point of view about why uh, certain uh, religious beliefs spread, others fall away, what some of the utility is in terms of uh, how they achieve uh, outcomes, uh, not just reproductive, but in terms of benefits, uh, other monetary, social reward, and so on. But the genetic reductionism that we do see all around us, it must be in our genes that lead us to be religious. That's what I was trying to sneer at earlier about the sort of hype of the uh, personalized genomics on, online. I, I, don't, I don't think you should look there. I don't think there's much to be found there. And I think that's sort of, uh, I don't know, reductionism of convenience or something like that. Yeah. And materiality. <laughs> Pay for it. Yeah, well, yeah. So it's a plot by Francis Collins to pour money into the <laughs> genome project. On that controversial <laughs> note, I think uh, we should end with uh, no one's words more than Charles Darwin. So let me just uh, throw out, a, a, there's so many beautiful lines of his. Uh, <laughs> please, if you'd all just be silent. Uh, um, and, and especially addressing the question that some people raise sometimes, that if we lived in a world without, without uh, a, a god, would it be... Would it be a cold and, and unbeautiful and undramatic world? Uh, he, did, he did, I think, address this nicely in, in this line. There is grandeur, in a, in a very positive view to bring us all together at the end, there is grandeur in this view of life, Darwin wrote, with its several powers, having been originally breathed into a few forms or into one, and that whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed law of gravity from so simple a beginning, Endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. So on that note, with a future ahead of us, I'd like to thank our panelists for coming. Thank you all for coming. And we'll see you next time at the Center for American Progress. Thanks.